Welcome to the Data Canteen, a podcast focused on the care and feeding of data scientists and machine learning engineers who share in the common bond of U.S. military service. I'm your host, Ted Hallam. Today, I'm chatting with Lak Lakshmanan, Director of Data Analytics and AI Solutions at Google Cloud. We hit on a range of topics in this conversation to include Google's evolved view of data science and what that means for you, the biggest developments that Lack sees on the horizon for our field, and the biggest challenges for all of us, practitioners, businesses, and governments, as we all strive for an edge with AI. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and here we go. Lack, thank you so much for coming on the show. Man, I have been excited about this. It took a little while to get the coordination right because I had some stuff going on on my end and we had to reschedule. Life happens, Ted. So I'm <laughs> That's super right. happy to be here. Super, so, you know, very honored that you invited me over. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Now, when I was looking over your background, I was just blown away. So you've written tons of papers, tons of books. I mean, speaking of books, as I was looking through your background, I realized that you actually wrote two of my favorite O'Reilly books. I've got here Practical Machine Learning for Computer Vision and Machine Learning Design Patterns. Just absolutely fantastic. I think when I looked you up on Google Scholar, there was like over 200 citations. Does that sound right? Uh, yes, I'm a I'm, I like to say that I'm a recovering academic. <laughs> uh, uh, there's some sense in my second career. I know this is very familiar to like a lot of you on this podcast. Now you retire from the military and you go into civilian life. In, in that's very similar, right? So I, I, I was uh, a researcher at uh, you know, doing weather research, uh, did that for 20 years, and then basically found myself in a startup uh, uh, based you know, doing precision agriculture for farming. And that's what brought me to Google. Uh, so I mean, no, I'm on, I'm on my second second inning, second career. All of those papers are from my I think my previous one. Wow! So then you you hit on what I was going to say. I I noticed a range of everything from data science for weather all the way to your current role now as director of data analytics and AI solutions at Google Cloud. So just for folks, you know, we have people um, every day coming to the veterans and data science and machine learning community, and they're just thinking about getting out of the military, or maybe they transitioned out of the military to civilian life recently. And so they're very much thinking about, if I want to get into data science, what should that look like? Can you tell us about your own preparation and what you did to get into the field of data science and then your current role? Oh, absolutely. So I, I think mine was the very traditional entry into data science in the sense that uh, I, I have an engineering background. I did my undergrad in engineering. Uh, I did my master's work at the Ohio State University working on uh, ultrasound images. So this was, my work was in the Cleveland Clinic. And uh, this, this tells you how old I am. Uh, so this was like 1993, 94. And I would be in Columbus. I'd be at some kind of a student party and somebody would say, what are you doing? And I'd say, well, I'm working uh, working at the Cleveland Clinic. And they'd say, but you're here in Columbus. How are you working at the Cleveland Clinic? And I would explain to them about this thing called uh, Unix and how you could log into a computer like a few hundred miles away and you could basically get data and do things with data. Uh, so, you know, in that sense, you know, I think I've, I've had a lot of you know, advantages in the sense of it's very easy to keep up with technology as it, as it grows when you're working with it. Uh, so I started my career doing uh, computer vision, 
doing image processing for medical images. And uh, when once I finished my master's, my first job was uh, in a weather research laboratory called the National Severe Storms Lab in Oklahoma. And so my work essentially involved uh, finding patterns on uh, in, in weather radar images for things like tornadoes, flash floods, lightning, hail, et cetera. So any, any of you who lived in the Midwest and you have a, a, somebody on TV screaming about a, a, a storm that's basically going to come uh, like to your town and hit at exactly 2.13 p.m. Well, all of those are ML models that basically were, you know, were built, built, by, built, built by our team. So if you've been in an airport and you've seen like the continental map of like weather over the entire U.S., that's like 140, 150 radars. All of those have to be combined in real time, cleaned up. So that was my life's work. And I had been doing that till about uh, 2014. And uh, one of the things that, that happened when you're in academia is that you get to consult with private companies too. And one of the companies I was, I was consulting for was called Climate Corporation, based in Silicon Valley. And uh, so they were a precision agriculture firm. And the idea was uh, telling farmers what to plant, when to plant it, what's not, depending on their soil type, depending on the uh, type of seeds, et cetera. And uh, uh, they got acquired. They got acquired by uh, Monsanto at the time. Now it's Bayer, but they got acquired by Monsanto and they needed to build their data science team very fast. And because I had been consulting with them, they asked me to like come over and help them build that build that team up. So I took like one year off from uh, moved from Oklahoma to beautiful Pacific Northwest. So came came to Seattle and like you know uh, like you know built this team and you know, that team essentially doing great work built uh, like amazing rainfall estimation model that gets used in farming. But the point is that at the end of that year. I had a choice, go back to academia or continue in industry. And there were two things that happened in 2014. So one was, uh, there is this uh, very uh, influential paper that came out of the University of Toronto uh, on deep learning. So you know, people have been doing convolutional learning and deep learning and like, but it did actually work in reality until uh, this uh, group of authors basically proved that you could run this on GPUs. They did a bunch of different things, and they essentially won the, 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 the traditional contest that's used in computer vision to benchmark your applications. It's called like ImageNet. And he, they, they won it by the kind of improvement that you see over 10 years. They just got in a year, and everybody is like, okay, like this field has changed. Right, this field has changed, and and the, the how had it changed? All of the stuff that I had been doing manually, designing vision filters for radar images, the ML model just learns on its own. Right, you give it enough data, it learns it. Right, so that's the first change that happened. The second change that happened was that that was the first time that I used cloud. Right? And uh, one of the hardest things in machine learning is building a training data set. And it used to take us 
nearly four years to process 15 years of weather data. But that was because we had only 70 machines to us. Move over to the cloud and you have near infinite scale and anything that you can do with 100 machines in 10 hours, you can do with 1,000 machines in an hour. So which essentially meant that we brought that processing time from four years to two weeks. We just, no, it's the same cost. For the same amount of money, you get to process more data faster and you get to experiment faster. And that was the like, realization that the world had fundamentally changed. All of these things that I had been writing these papers on, applying machine learning techniques and data science techniques, they didn't call it data science at the time, uh, but no, uh, these techniques in science was now open to people who were not scientists, people who were not engineers, people who did not have the kind of academic training that I had had. This was now what we would say it's democratized. So to the point where someone who doesn't have training in the field can pick it up. And that's why I'm like super excited to be talking to this group here because it is now ready for folks like, no, no, uh, you, no, no, Ted, we were just talking before we got on the show about like no, about your entry into data science. And the idea here is that you were able to pick it up even though you didn't have the quantitative training. I love hearing that story because that basically proves the power, right, of this whole thing. So uh, my journey into this doesn't have to be your journey. Your journey is going to be a whole lot easier. And you know, that is absolutely phenomenal if it is that way. Well, I know that's going to be an encouragement to a lot of people who are listening to this episode. But as I was hearing you talk about your background, there was a couple of takeaways and questions that came up in my mind. And, and that is, I mean, you have tremendous history specifically with computer vision. That was one of my takeaways. And you've seen multiple major evolutions in the field of computer vision. So I'm curious what advice you have for our listeners who are going to have, you know, 10, 15, 20 more years in this field of data science and machine learning. Mm -hmm. What are your recommendations for how to keep up with things as they change? And then also I could imagine from the way you described it, that it can be sometimes not just difficult to keep up, but also maybe kind of depressing when you've spent a lot of time and effort to specialize on a certain thing. And then the technology maybe kind of leapfrogs and you're like, oh, well, I was so good at this, but now like those skills aren't as relevant anymore. So how do you evolve as fast as the, as, as the technology? What are your recommendations? Absolutely. So, so let's, let's take those two because those are great questions. Let's take them one, one after the other. The first one, uh, computer vision. Yes, I had a lot of uh, experience in computer vision, uh, but that was because I had to. I had to specialize because it was a hard, challenging technological thing. Now, when you now we have people on my team, they do machine learning where they can easily hop between natural language processing and computer vision and time series modeling. Right? They can hop from one to the other much easier because as the abstraction levels increase, you now are able to cover more ground. Okay? So, Again, like your journey doesn't have to be my journey, right? Uh, I had to do it because I'm old and I've basically been in this field for a long time. 
that doesn't have to be your journey into this. Like you have the ability to actually cover um, you know, a lot more things. And again, so that brings me to the second thing. Well, my background was in computer vision. My computer vision, all of the stuff that I knew about computer vision became in some sense irrelevant, right? Now, the whole idea of designing a spatial filter, designing a matched filter, being able to basically, uh, you know, uh, I do pattern recognition by hand, doing feature engineering, understanding uh, co like co-occurrence matrices, who cares, right? You don't need them anymore because if you have enough data and you train a machine learning model, the first five or six layers of the model learn it by themselves. And you go look at the second layer of an ML model, it has a whole bunch of textures in it. Textures was my PhD thesis. I spent four years developing textures on satellite imagery. Now, do I get depressed that an ML model learns that thing in 30 minutes? Well, that's one way to look at it. Like, oh my God, I spent four years, like, you know, uh, getting a PhD for developing this thing that a machine just learns so quickly and easily. That's one way to look at it. But I'm much more of an optimist that way, right? Rather than look at it that way, instead I say, okay, like I had to do, do computer vision, forget about that. Now I get to do recommendation systems. Now I get to do uh, uh, time series forecasting. Now I get to do NLP. I had not done a single machine learning model or natural language until I got to Google. I never had to, but I learned it. And I think, and the fact that I could learn it, even though I had no expertise in linguistics is like, yeah, sure. I sacrificed all my uh, like esoteric knowledge in computer vision. But in return, I got the ability to basically cover a lot more ground. And that is a, that's a normal technology evolution as well. So you don't, uh, you know, I mean, part of being in technology is, is being willing to live with the rapid uh, pace of change. What never leaves you uh, is the judgment is the intuitive understanding that you develop in one field, it will apply to other things as well, right? The fact that I know and deeply understand convolution means that it made it easier for me to be, pick up uh, recurrent neural networks, right? It is, it is basically uh, processing in, in a different domain, but it is that the idea of the stateful processing makes a lot of sense, right? So things, uh, yeah, so that 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 those conceptual models, the abstractions, they don't go away, and uh, uh, and definitely judgment that you develop of what is hard, what is easy, what's going to take a long time, what is a bear trap, those things are things you you can only develop through experience, and that doesn't go away. So now, fundamentally, I'm an optimist as far as technology change is concerned. So. What I heard you say was that the underlying things that you've learned, those more, those lower level, that lower level knowledge, you're still going to be able to apply it most likely. It'll just be in a different way than you originally applied it. And then the other thing I took away was that you just, you, you recognize the new technology for what it was, that you were sort of trading a really awesome 57 Chevy that you'd worked on really hard for a brand new Ferrari, right? 
And so while the, while the other, you know, your heart and soul is invested in it, you could still take the brand new Ferrari and be really happy for that and its capabilities that it gave you to do your job, right? Or, or more, or more like that, I was trading my 57 Chevy for uh, a bus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fundamentally, fundamentally something that would work only for me into right. something that moves a whole lot more people much more efficiently gets a lot more done but i don't get the personal satisfaction of driving uh driving either the chevy or a ferrari right uh, the, it's become a lot more utilitarian sure sure well i thank you for sharing those insights on how people can cope with the the pace of change because sometimes it is blistering um and that in itself is is a skill to be able to keep up so like at this point, I want to transition to a diagram that actually is what was served as the catalyst for you coming on the show today. So let me go ahead and bring that up. All right. So yes. I, I have to give credit to Adam Jennings. He found this awesome uh, workflow diagram that you guys have created at Google Cloud. My understanding is that it kind of captures your current and near to midterm vision of of what data science is and how it functions um he posted this in our slack and the reaction was overwhelmingly po positive people really liked how it captured all the moving parts but the one thing that it did generate questions about is sort of the overarching term that we have here for the whole thing is data science mm -hmm. and i think conventionally a lot of people would have referred to that data analysis area and the model development kind of collectively as data science and data engineering would have been considered, you know, its own separate field. And then ML engineering on the other end would have been considered its own separate thing. So there was, as you might imagine, there was a number of questions that kind of spiraled out of this things like Google probably made this nomenclature choice for a reason. Does it point to specific things that Google cloud views about where our field is headed? There was also questions about, well, if all of this is data science, that's more than what any one person can do. Mm -hmm. So is the title data scientist going to go away because no one person can embody all of that? So uh, perfectly yeah, valid questions, right? Uh, and the thing that I would like to basically uh, come, like, it's sometimes good to think of an analogy. Okay, let's take instead of data science, let's imagine that the analogy is medicine, right? And you say you have a medical doctor. Uh, there's a lot of different people who together form that, you know, uh, the, the, the entirety of the experience of a patient experience. That, so you, like, the data science is what all these people do right? And the, just as patient care is what everyone in medicine does. So all of these people are doing data science, not just the most glamorous intermediate thing of model development, because how good is if your model if the data engineering people don't basically take care of data quality, right? What if they don't make your data discoverable? So uh, data engineering has to be done with the perspective that insights have to be drawn from the data. 
justice, you know, the person basically admitting patients into the system for care, right? The person at the front line who may be the primary physician, right? Has to understand, right? All of the stuff that's going to follow afterwards, right? So that's one way to think about it, right? It is not that uh, this is no, this is data science is not an individual person's, uh, it's not something that an individual does. It's a team sport. And there is multiple roles that people play in order to do data science. There are data engineers, right? There are data analysts. There are model developers, right? Uh, there are uh, no, ML engineers. And then there are developers who activate the insights out of data, who basically build websites that show the results of recommendation systems, et cetera. Okay. So there are multiple roles here that together basically um, create a data science workflow. So when you talk about a data science workflow, what, this is what we're talking about here is how do you, how do you get insights from data? Right? That's the that's essentially it. How do you get insights from data? How do you automate the getting of insights from data? Now, you're absolutely right, Ted, that lots of times people talk about the middle, the model development as data science, but then you actually go to a practicing data scientist and you ask them, what is it that you do most of your day? And what is it that they do? They get their data ready. They have to do data wrangling, exploratory data analysis. Then they experiment and it doesn't do what they thought. And they go back and <laughs> right. Bingo, right? So what, what a data scientist does 80% of the time is data analysis and data engineering. So now are we going to go to, I mean, then doesn't it make sense that data science is what data scientists do? It does. Absolutely, right? So that's that's the other way to think about this, right? This is what data scientists in industry do. They do data engineering, they do data analysis, they develop models, they put models into production, they basically help generate insights. Now, does any one person do it? No, it's a team sport. But which things do people do depends on the industry, depends on the person, right? So what you just said, Ted, was that you have data scientists who do data wrangling, data analysis, and model development. Okay, that's one view of it. But if you look at another view of it, imagine that you're in a highly regulated industry, right? You're in finance, right, uh, et cetera. The data engineering has been done, right? The data like has been, the data have been put in a governed form in a golden source. And then the data scientists and in those industries, they start from there. They start with the data that's, that is that they have available to them. And then they build ML models, they productionize it. They basically use it to make trading decisions. They're really like, if you ask them, what do they do in the most of the time, they'll say 80% of the time, I'm out there fiddling with my real-time models. I don't really get to do model development because all the time I'm basically fixing uh, like bugs in my models and basically adapting my models to what's happening in the markets, et cetera. Right? So you have, that may be the other view of things. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that 
these are all the things that need to get done. What any one person does is going to depend on the company, on the industry. It's going to be a slice of them. So that's that's in a large company. Now, go back to a really small firm, right? You're a team of five and you're a startup and you basically have to get going. You have to basically build your minimum viable product. Who, who's going to do the ML engineering? Who's going to do the ML activation? Who's going to do the data engineering? It's you, right? And yes, you've got to do everything, but the good news is that everything here is getting easier because of the higher levels of abstraction. Will you be able to do data modeling to the extent of somebody who works day in and day out on data modeling? Probably not. But will you have a good enough data model to get your MVP out the door? Yeah. Right? Same with ML engineering. Will you basically be able to detect drift immediately? Will you be able to adapt your model? Maybe not to the level of somebody who specializes in that. But will you then just put a model out and never, never change it? No. You will probably put the model on a schedule. And drift or no drift, you're going to retrain the model every every week. It's fine. Just on a temp on a temporal basis. On a temporal basis, right? It's fine. It's not as efficient, but it's it's fine. It's good enough. It gets it gets the job done. And that kind of uh, like you know uh, adaptation is very 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 common. So you need to do all these things, but you don't need to be the world's expert in all of these things. Well, I think that's a perfect segue to the next question that I wanted to ask you, and that is not to not to muddle the waters with even more terminology because there's certainly plenty um, in this diagram. Mm -hmm. But as I looked at the diagram and you see all the arrows and everything very much has a flow, mm -hmm. um, I was curious how much of this was inspired or driven by the push towards MLOps because to me, while the title says data science, what this really is, it's a mapping of a full-featured MLOps platform flow, building those automated, reproducible pipelines. Okay, totally. I mean, these days, um, a lot of data science is moving from being descriptive to being predictive. And a lot of ML models are moving from train once and run forever to basically adapt uh, to the environment. And the methods are moving from being bespoke to being fully automated. Put those three things together and that's what is MLOps, right? So definitely this diagram is showing where the field is headed. And the good thing is that if you never retrain your models, it means that a few of these things, like model monitoring drops, maybe, right? So you may not have to do a few of these things if you're basically doing things not in an MLOps way. But our hope is like, you know, overall, if you're going to do the most challenging kinds of problems and you want to do it as fully automated as possible, everything being predictive, then this is what you would need. If you're doing things, you know, uh, where you're basically saying, I'm not going to worry about these aspects, there are things in here that you don't have to do. 
So at this point, I definitely want to go back. I know I mentioned that I got this graphic from Adam Jennings, who works there at Google. But I also have to thank Adam, because if it hadn't been for him running quite a bit of interference, we wouldn't have been able to have you here on the show. So definitely thanks to Adam for doing all that communication and emailing to help make this happen. So before we move away from this slide, given everything that you just said, when you look out over the next five years, you know, and you have a, a really nice altitude to, to give us a perspective, what are the two major implications or changes that you think will happen that this graphic is maybe trying to get at that people should be aware of and have on their radar? Number one, right? Uh, you notice that uh, the, the order here, data engineering followed by data analysis. That actually is not what happens in a lot of businesses today. It is data analysis followed by data engineering because you're basically looking at the data before you decide how you're gonna pre-process it and how you're gonna store it. What we are capturing here is looking ahead a little bit. What we're seeing the most advanced customers of ours doing, which is landing the raw data, right? Or in the data as raw in a form as possible and basically opening it up for analysis. So one of the things that you see here is that trend of ETL, right? You're basically transforming before you're loading the data and you're basically changing that to ELT, you're loading the data before you're transforming it on the fly, right? So you're saying that is one of the trends that you're, that you're kind of seeing here. And the other one that you, you rightly pointed out is that if we had done this diagram two years ago, the whole ML engineering thing would not have even existed right? uh, because the primary mode of people basically uh, deploying machine learning models to production was you train a model and you deploy it, right? And you deploy it embedded in your applications. But now you basically see the whole idea of uh, reuse and you see reuse everywhere in this diagram. You see reuse with a feature store. You see reuse with a model registry. You see reuse with data cataloging. You see reuse with data insights. Right? So you see reuse, not being called reuse, but you see reuse in every, every part of this diagram. Because just as with traditional software, there is becoming this emphasis on not doing things as a one-off, but as basically building things in a reusable, uh, reusable manner, componentized. And in traditional software, these are libraries, these are microservices. And in data, these are you know, data catalogs. These are this metadata. This is uh, you know, uh, semantic layers for data insights. This is registered models. This is feature, reusable features. This is about basically you know, uh, even like embedded analytics on insights activation where you can basically build a widget and that widget can be embedded in multiple websites. Right? So that, that idea of reuse was not something that was at the forefront of people's minds when they thought about data two years ago. And we really see this starting to become a big thing. So in the next two to three years, I think 
uh, like that idea of expanding flexibility, making things more agile, making things more reusable is going to be a big thing. I know you asked about five years. I have no crystal ball to five years. I have a crystal ball to two <laughs> years because I can see what uh, that's how long it takes for the really advanced set of customers of ours of Google Cloud, uh, right, to be doing things before we uh, see it basically being more broadly embraced by the the uh, not early adopters, but the, the but but the, but the late majority. Now, I think that you have provided our guests with phenomenal insight here, and it very much is in line with what we've heard in some previous episodes. I had a, a guest on the show before, and I asked him, um, he's a, a hiring manager for data science and machine learning teams, and I said, what is the hardest skill for you to hire for so that our folks will know where to put their upscaling investments where they'll be most valuable? And he said, Ab right now, absolutely, ML engineering and ML ops he said, it's just almost impossible to find the people that I'm looking for with these skills. And to, to the point that you just said, it's critical because everybody wants to introduce more reproducibility, more automation to scale that human capability, right? Because mm -hmm. if you don't have that, if everything's still manual and one off, then a data scientist builds, what would you say, maybe 10 models. And then from that point, it's just trying to monitor and maintain what exactly. he or she has built. Whereas if you have a system like what's laid out in this diagram, then you can stay focused on solving the business's next problem and your model that's out there in production, the, the monitoring, what it's, it's being handled. It's being if handled. it, if it drifts, it'll be detected. Probably, you know, if, if, if the right data pipeline is there to continue growing the training set, it might just automatically retrain and then redeploy you know, with nothing but a dashboard notification. And then you just continue with developing your next model. I mean, it really is a beautiful thing. So I can, I can absolutely see why you said all of those things. And I'm so glad you captured that for our listeners. Now, like for the next part of the conversation, I'd like to read you a quote that I recently heard from Sadie St. Lawrence. I was listening to the super data science podcast and there was a quote that really stood out to me. She said, if you're a practicing data scientist right now and you pride yourself on the cleanliness of your code and the complexity of the models that you develop, you might want to take a little bit of a different look and approach to that. I'm not saying your skills are going out of date, but at the end of the day, we're automating our job at the same time as we're doing it. And I think this perfectly dovetails in with what you just said about the reproducibility and the automation in MLOps pipelines. It also dovetails nicely with what you said of your own experience of having to stay up with the times and things change and you can't just continue to do what maybe you originally were trained to do. So I guess with, with the context of, of her quote in mind, specifically when you think about AutoML, which seems to be getting more and more capable, I, I think it's extremely capable with tabular data. But I'm, I'm interested in your perspective and things you may know from where you sit. As far as computer vision and NLP, do you think that AutoML is on the horizon going to be extremely capable in those arenas as well? Yeah, I mean, if anything, AutoML is even more capable on image problems like ob uh, object detection, image classification, et cetera. Uh, it is super hard. 
to uh, beat an auto ML model these days. Now it reminds me of uh, of playing chess against computer programs. And you no, know, once upon a time, right? Uh, you could you had a shot, and now the only shot you have is to basically go in and change the settings of the computer program so that it doesn't have any time to think anymore, right? So. Uh, that tends to be the thing with AutoML. If you give it only an hour or only two hours, yeah, you may be able to beat it, but give an AutoML program 24 hours, a budget of 24 hours, and sorry, it's just, it's going to be uh, so good that it's going to be very, 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 very hard for, for you to beat, especially when you take into account the cost of your time, right? And you've got to remember that uh, at the end of the day, uh, your time is valuable and you want to spend it on things that cannot be automated. Because if something can be automated, you should let the automation take care of it. Because as I said, there's a lot of human judgment involved. There's a lot of decision-making involved. You want to basically allow yourself to play in the places where uh, you bring unique value, right? So it is uh, you know, sometimes a lot of the discussions about AutoML turn out to be you versus AutoML. Can AutoML do your job better than you? Well, that usually means that you're defining your job very, very, very narrowly, right? The only thing AutoML does is that given a, given a data set, it will create an ML model figure out the right hyperparameters, figure out the right architecture, usually by doing an exhaustive search, sometimes by doing an architecture search, by building architectural components one by one, but regardless, it's a search through a known catalog and it basically gives you the best thing. So what it has done is that it's automated your experimentation. That's all it's done. And if you define your job as basically doing that routine, changing of parameters and rerunning the model, you're looking at your job very, very, very narrowly. But if you think about your, like that data science diagram that we talked about, if you think about your job as deciding what data to collect, deciding which teams to go work with, deciding which problems to solve, deciding what metrics to use to measure the performance of your problems, deciding how to communicate the results of your uh, models to decision makers as changing the workflow of end users by providing them guidance along the way. These are not things that AutoML does. And these are the things that humans are extremely good at. We're social creatures. And we should be looking at what can we do to take advantage of our communication skills, of our judgment, of our problem-solving skills, and not think of ourselves as calculators. Right? I don't think you and I measure our, ourselves against like your Texas Instruments calculator on whether you can multiply a five-digit number faster than your Texas Instrument calculator. We don't. 
why are we measuring ourselves against RPML? It's a great question. When you put it that way, it seems absolutely absurd. So with everything that you said in view and trying to focus on those things that can't be automated, for folks that might be transitioning out of the military right now as they hear this episode, in terms of skills, courses, degree programs, where do you recommend that people in 2022 invest their effort so that it will have the best return for the foreseeable future? First of all, I think for people uh, uh, you know, uh, transitioning out of the military, first of all, thank you very much for your service, right? Uh, you know, this is, uh, it, like, I mean, we're recording this on the week that uh, Russian tanks just rolled into Ukraine. And, uh, you know, a week like this, you totally, totally appreciate all of the, uh, you know, we would not be a country with, without the folks in, in service. So, uh, you know, huge, huge thanks for you for, uh, like everything that you do. Having said that, right, you're coming out of service and you're transitioning out. And the first thing that you want to look at is where are your strengths? And I've worked with a lot of ex-Marines. I've worked with a lot of people who were in the Air Force because I worked with folks from the Air Force Weather Agency. And the thing that always struck me was the military builds leaders, right? Builds leaders at a much younger age than anywhere else, right? So people come in with, with their head squarely on their shoulders, with the ability to basically be calm under pressure, to be able to basically lead groups. I mean, where else do you lead, do you get to lead a group of like 15 people when you're in your early 30s, right? So the military gives you that amazing uh, leadership experience an amazing ability to basically have situational awareness. So remember that those are your strengths. Those are the strengths that the military has given you, the leg up, if you will, that people in civilian life just don't have, right? It's, it's really hard to get that leg up anywhere else. So what you should be looking at is, how do I take these skills that I have and apply them to this new domain that I want to enter, okay? So there's two ways that you should, you should be looking at it. One way is uh, that technologically, right? You don't want to basically uh, you know, be uh, thinking that you have to be technically as capable as everybody on your team, right? You want to think in terms of, again, data science, software engineering, all of these are, are team, team sports. And being a team sport, you don't have to be the absolute best at everything. You want to basically complement the team. And the way you complement this team is with your leadership, with your situational awareness, with your ability to think through options, with your ability to basically get a lot of people behind you, right? So given that, what roles do you play in software, you know, I find that people in the military are amazing product managers, right? They're amazing at basically go to market because they have, you know, you know like cold calling is one of the hardest things in the world, right? And, uh, you know, when you, and uh, sellers do this all the time, but people with a technology background find it super hard to do. But if you're building a go to market 
when every product, every software product needs go to market. So if you're basically on the go to market side of a technology company, you know, your, your skills will be phenomenal and you will shine. Right? So choose where it is that you want to play in a place that you're going to be absolutely, you're going to just kill it, right? In terms of being like amazing at it. Now, what do, what do you have to learn then? Now, now that you know where you want to go, now you want to say, what is it that I want to learn? So if you are saying that, go away, if I said, oh, you, okay, you say, as data science, I'm, he's going to say, you should go listen to like the Andrew and Coursera courses, and you should go read the PhD uh, treatises on, uh, uh, on learning from data, like Trevor Hesty's book, et cetera. You can, but I think that is fundamentally like trying to be what, what, what you're not, right? But that's not your strength. Your strength is in, is in product. Your strength is in go-to-market. And given that, figure out uh, more of the uh, uh, MBA courses. Figure out more of the business courses. Figure out more of how data gets used to make decisions, how data gets used to do marketing campaigns, how data gets used to do sales lead scoring. Those are the things that you that you should learn. I don't know what other guests have told you, right? I, mean, I may be like completely off to one end here, but it's not about basically learning image classification. It's not about learning, uh, you know, RNNs. It's not about learning how to do ML models. It's about learning how to take the results of ML models and apply them in a business context, which is where, you know, you're gonna you you're gonna be phenomenally successful. So, I we haven't had a previous guest say that, but I actually really like what you said because it's very complimentary. I think it kind of validates some sidebar advice I've given. I've never, I don't think I've given it explicitly on on this podcast. But I personally did a master of science in business analytics, and uh, I picked I picked the most rigorous MSBA program I could find that. Where I actually did lots of, lots of model building. You know, we got all the way into computer vision, NLP, and everything in that program. But I wanted the business acumen as well. And I felt like marrying those two up was very valuable for all the reasons that you said. And also, as many military folks don't have necessarily like a, a bachelor's in mathematics or physics or something like that, usually those programs, the, the, if you pick a rigorous program, they're still going to have some solid prerequisites. But they're going to be a little bit more accessible than like if you just did a straight up master's in computer science where you have to have multiple we're, calculus we're, courses yeah, and things like that. Basically where essentially the first five classes are read out classes. Exactly. And yeah. I mean, you, you don't need that. No, that's not because, again, that, that's not playing to your strength. And I, I, like, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in uh, like knowing what the first 35 years of your life have been like and taking advantage of the skills that you've built, the opportunities that the military has given you to get ahead rather than basically uh, like start behind everybody else in something uh, where, you know, where you have to play a lot of catch up. Well, you get momentum, right? And when you get extreme momentum, doing a U-turn is complicated. But if you can shift your direction, then that's a little bit more feasible. And I think that that's a great way for veterans to look at it. So changing gears a little bit from your perspective, you know, when you look at across the globe, 
there's a race everywhere. There's a race in the private sector, race in the public sector for people who want to do data-driven decision-making and do it well. So when you think about both non-technical companies, because I think that the really big tech companies, of course, which you're very familiar with there at Google, they very much got this ironed out pretty well. I think when you're talking about non-tech mid-sized American businesses, there's probably a lot of people out there that still have a lot of learning to do about how to do that process well that was on the diagram earlier. And I think in government, that's kind of the same thing. So thinking about the U.S. government, thinking about non-tech mid-sized American businesses, what do you think are the biggest challenges to remaining competitive on a global scale and getting that ability to do data-driven decision-making in a way that's going to be on par with everywhere else in the world. Yeah, the funny thing is I work at Google, yes. And I know everyone else says, oh, Google has got the data thing completely figured out. And I know that my, my weeks are filled with all of the places where we haven't gotten it figured out. And we're basically, basic, our goal is to figure it out. But I, I, I get where you're, where you're coming from, which is that the areas that we're addressing are more of the corner cases. Right? It's not the it's not the, the, the low-hanging fruit is mostly all taken care of. Now we're basically looking at corner cases, we're looking at unusual situations, we're looking at uh, two or three things happen together that makes uh, the, the routine automated stuff not work well, uh, or we're basically looking at places where the business is so new that we don't have any data. Those are the things that we're looking at. But that also points at the challenge that uh, the middle, uh, if you will, is facing. Because if you're a bank, uh, you cannot say, I'm a bank and let me look at what the other banks are doing. You have to look at what Square is doing, what Stripe is doing, what PayPal is doing. Because, you know, uh, there's there are disruptors. There are disruptors. I mean, just just imagine what happened to the telecom industry with the advent of smartphones, mm -hmm. right? Uh, all it takes, all it takes, is a is a disruptor who basically builds a product that ends up basically invalidating your entire roadmap, right? Uh, and now, no, there's a complete sea change in the whole communication industry because of smartphones. And that's like, it, no, that's, 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 the, that's the, no, danger that payments firms, right, are, are basically posing in the financial space, the uh, existential threat, if you will, in industry after industry, that there is a disruptor out there. And if that disruptor is able to basically take advantage of data, is able to take advantage of AI, is able to take advantage of technology in general to experiment faster, uh, there is no moat, right, anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, going, that's going to protect your business. All right. So we were talking about the biggest challenges to like mid-sized U.S. businesses and the U.S. government. But then taking it to the other end of the spectrum, back to you personally, and then thinking about the conversation that we've had up to this point. So 
it's been clear you've had a career where the whole your whole career encompassed just learning and things changing and then learning more. And then you just talked to us about how you have to be ready when disruptive competitors are out to eat your lunch like every day. <laughs> so for you personally, I'm sure that you're still learning. And I'm curious to know what is your learning focus today to be ready for tomorrow? Uh, so, Edney, uh, I have a, uh, it's just my personal philosophy, I guess, but every two and two to three years, I look up from wherever I'm, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing and say, what is the thing that I don't know that I should be learning? And I basically make it my point to not let the day-to-day get in the way of me learning that new thing. So sometimes it means changing jobs, changing roles within the company, going and figuring out new things. But no, uh, definitely uh, taking taking a week of uh, reflection uh, to figure out what it is that you need to learn uh, is, is an important, absolutely important practice. Uh, what is it for me? I don't know quite yet but uh vacation's coming up well I, I there was power in what you said though and i everybody i think could stand to write that down maybe put it on a post-it note at the bottom of their monitor of don't let the day-to-day choke out your vision for what you need to be learning because that's really easy oh man it ha- it's happened to me many times where months go by and then i come up for air and i think gosh i haven't been so busy I haven't learned anything in a while. Yeah, and... everyone learns differently. And for me, the way I've learned, and the reason you see all those books is because I learn when I explain things to people. And uh, I can't get people to listen to me long enough, so I now write. <laughs> so. So, well, I, so I've kind of taken the opposite side. I've, I've started to do these little um, three, two to three minute video clips weekly. We put them out from the Veterans and Data Science Machine Learning Community the snappy little name is called better way Wednesday. And it's where we take and we give a morsel of efficiency and I distill it as concisely as I can. Perfect. Let me tell you getting all of your knowledge straight enough that you can condense it down like that is a challenge. And I'm, I'm learning a lot from doing that. on a weekly basis. Yeah. I think you're discovering the same thing, right? That if you can explain it easily and simply, you've really internalized it. And exactly. that's, a, that's an amazing way. It's, it's an amazing way of sharing with other people, but it's also an amazing way of making sure that you're continuing to learn. Absolutely. So on that topic of learning, I'd love to hear, you know, obviously I'm, I'm sure that the Data Canteen is your new favorite podcast, but aside from the Data Canteen, what other learning resources in terms of courses, podcasts, books, just your favorites that you would like to point our listeners to so that they can consume those as well and get all the value that, that those resources have to offer. Okay. I've, I've got to admit something. This is going to be horrible to admit. Uh, but I, I read for pleasure. So pretty much the only reading that I do is fiction, right? Uh, uh, that's, that's the only thing I do. Uh, all of the learning that happens I do in a problem-based way. Here's a problem that I need to solve and I will go do research and find all of the articles, all of the books, all of the things that have been written about it. 
So I'm not really like subscribing to uh, to articles. I'm not I'm not reading the next new book that comes out. But instead, I'll say here's a problem that I have, and I will basically go go and know like read books that were published like three years ago, four years ago. But that's because they address the the problem that I want to solve. Well, like I appreciate so much you coming on the show, providing all your insight to our listeners. Uh, humoring and fielding all of my questions on the screen throughout the whole show. We've had your LinkedIn username. Is that how you prefer to be contacted? The best way to contact me is on Twitter. It's okay. uh, so like, you know, uh, LAK underscore GCP. Uh, okay. So just go ahead and find me on Twitter. That's the best way to, to reach out to me. Uh, I rarely post on LinkedIn. Uh, okay. Well, we'll make sure that your Twitter handle that you just gave us is in the show notes below. So if you want to reach out to Lack on Twitter, you'll be able to do that. And Lack, again, from my heart, thanks so much for making the time for us. Yeah, you're welcome. And yeah, thank you all for listening. Absolutely. Thank you for joining Lack and I for this conversation about how data science is evolving, what that means for you, and how we can be best prepared for what lies ahead. Lack's written a number of great books on machine learning, two of which live on the bookshelf next to my desk. If you'd like to check out one of those, there'll be links in the show notes below. With that, until the next episode, I bid you clean data, low p-values, and Godspeed on your data journey. The Data Canteen. Listen. Grow. Thrive.